Christ is the Lamb of God. Christ is the forgiveness. He is the priest. He is the king. And he is forever our hope. Are you in? Amen. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning. Great to be worshiping with you, whether you're joining us online or here in person. Man, we are here to make much of Jesus Christ. May we not neglect the meeting together, right? We went through that passage last week and the rallying with purpose that God gets all the glory, that we can be stirred up, that our worship goes further, all for Jesus Christ. It is all about Him. And all of God's people said... Amen. May we truly be fired up about that. So we're in a series here called Greater. Jesus, my sacrifice. And we're walking through Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. Actually, just two weeks left, this week and next. And we're through the end of this series. But we've been talking about what it means to see Jesus as greater because of his work on the cross. Because he died for me. Because he rose again, giving life to me because he is offering mercy and forgiveness greater, Jesus Christ. Man, we can't miss this. We cannot walk past this. Don't toy with it. Jesus is our hope. He is our sacrifice. He is our everything. And that's what the author in the book of Hebrews is talking about. Now remember, the author of Hebrews is writing this to Jewish people. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. He's writing to Hebrew people, right? And so as he's writing to these Jewish people who are getting saved, trusting in Christ, he's helping them to understand how the Old Testament law is fulfilled in Christ. That the Old Testament law was but a shadow pointing forward. Christ is the complete fulfillment, meaning he satisfied and did all of it. But more than that, the law pointing to him and it was implying there was one to come who would be the great sacrifice, Jesus Christ. He is our hope. So as we look at this book, we need to make sure we're always uh, understanding a little bit of the Old Testament that's coming out, right? And so we talked about, I'll be your trailer at the front end. So let's make sure we understand just a pinch of today of what we need to know, all right? So that said, we talked about the tabernacle a bunch over the last handful of weeks. This um, location that God made his presence known and available. And while the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God making himself known daily and regularly there at the tabernacle. Now the Jewish people could come in and they could get their sins forgiven there as they entered into the outer fence line, but they would come up to the altar and there their animal, whatever they brought with their sin in their heart that they wanted to get rid of, coming with that animal, they would hand that animal over and the priest would then sacrifice that animal. That animal would lose their life right in front of them because of their sin. And then the priest would take some of the blood of that animal and they would end up wiping it on the altar in a certain method and way that was told there and sprinkling of blood. And then the animal was put up on the fire and the heat of the altar's fire, the altar is probably about this high, and the heat of the fire of the flames of that coming off, you could almost feel the heat. Can you imagine how real sin was to them? When every sin you knew you had, remember sin went back in the Old Testament, was measured on these externals, these external laws. There was something that they knew they had violated. They brought an animal. This animal was being put up on the heat of the fire. You could see the smoke going up. There was a smell and a fervor and an intensity. You probably even stepped back a little as the heat of it is felt. Man, they felt the cost of their sin 
but they were thankful that they had the presence of God with them, the fire by, day, by night and the cloud by day, God leading them and providing for them. And so they had a real sense of the cost. And I'll just say, we celebrate the mercy we have in Jesus Christ and praise God for that. And the scripture is just all over the place talking about the love of God. He loves you with all he's got. God loves, everybody say, he loves me. I know it kind of feels weird to say it out loud, but that's real, man. He loves me. God loves me. That is a real truth, right? And so we walked through Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 last week, and it was all about the love of Jesus and the sacrifice and the mercy and the effectiveness and all that we have in him. God loves me. And this week is a passage that says, maybe we need to feel a little of the heat of our sin. And that's exactly what this passage is bringing. Just a little bit of that heat coming off of the altar. A little bit of the palpable sense of the cost of sin. And may we grasp what it is that sometimes we let so entangle us. All right? So do me a favor. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. As we begin to walk through this passage that brings a bit of heat on the concept of sin. Point number one. Live a life of faithful worship, not deliberate, unrepentant sin. Live a life of faithful worship, not deliberate, unrepentant sin. Worship, not selfishness. Celebrating Christ, not celebrating me, right? May we grasp all that our God is and may we go after him with all we've got. Now, before we get going in this passage, I just wanna say, This is a complex passage, and there are some difficult pieces to it, all right? And so, just so you know, there are a couple of different ways you can read and understand it. And so, as we walk through this, we're going to need to talk about it first, all right? So, the first possible answer that some have come up with, this is a believer, a believer who's wrestling with sin and so loses his salvation. Everybody say, not that. Dude, that is not biblical. Scripture all over the place. Jude chapter one says we are kept in Jesus, right? In Romans, it says nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. In John six, whom the father draws will come. And Jesus says, and I will lose none of them. We have this promise in Ephesians one that we are sealed with a guarantee of our inheritance. There are just too many passages to say that you're gonna lose your salvation. That is just not where it's at, all right? So not that, all right? But there are some that then would say, well, this is a believer, not losing salvation, but going through some discipline and some understanding that that sin needs to be let go of. This is a believer, right? And that is a legitimate possibility to this passage. And then another one is, this is an unbeliever in the church who's actually a part of the church, wandering around in the church, but toying with sin a ton. So if it's a believer, it's one who's a drifter. They're drifting away from Christ and into sin. And if it's the unbeliever, it's the poser, the one who's in the church making it look like they're saved, but they're really not. Either way, whichever one of those, it's someone who's getting further away from Christ. They're way down here. They're on the fence line, either saved or unsaved, but they're steeped in sin and wanting to go after that. That's what we're looking at. Okay, so there's a little bit of a choice there, and I will say as I've walked through it, I do believe that this is probably talking to uh, believers, and it's talking about a believer, and um, I will also say that I've changed my mind three times this week already. 
All right, so I'm just going to be really clear. There's a lot in this passage that can be complicated, all right? And I'm letting you know that. But here's why I'm landing on I think it's a believer, all right? First of all, it starts out for we, for if we, right? And so that's the author who's clearly saved, writing to the church, and he's talking to believers, and he's now talking with this pronoun. He's coming with last week's passage that let us, let us, let us, may we all go after this, for if we, like the context seems to really be staying with believership and the church that is saved and on fire, okay? That's the first piece, just the pronouns. And then the second piece is actually when you get to verse 29, we'll get there in a second, but it says that this one is sanctified. And that's a word that's hard to toy with, right? It says, this one is sanctified, cleansed, like there is a cleaning of the soul. They are set apart as holy, and it says, sanctified by the blood of Jesus. That sounds like saved, right? So that's where I'm at. Just so you know, that's why I am where I am as we walk it through. But you will also see why some might say unbeliever as you walk through, just seeing some of the description that goes on. So here we go. Ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. Here we go. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire. Well, that sounds like a fun passage, huh? (laughs) So we're going to dig in, man, and let's get real on it. Let's be super real about what it says. It starts out for... So he's connecting it to last week's passage. It was all about the church and gathering together. Let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us not neglect meeting together. Let's rally together. We as a church, let's go after it. Why would we rally as a church? Four, here's the reason why. This is a value in encouraging one another in rallying together. For if we go on sinning deliberately... Now, just so you know, in the Greek, this is a word that is written that means it goes on and on and on and on with no stopping. This is like I sin and the Holy Spirit convicts and I go, I don't care. I'm just going to keep doing it. I like this sin. I'm going to embrace this and I'm going to keep going. I'm sinning again in it. And he convicts and you go, I don't care. And he convicts, I don't care. And he convicts, I don't care. And you just stay in that sin, sinning and sinning and sinning. It's in the ING ongoing sense, okay? And uh, just so we understand, this person is willfully, deliberately deciding to do it. Now, if you think about it, sin is In some ways, we're always deliberately doing it, right? But a lot of sin that we go after is not this premeditated, planned refusal against God. It's in a moment something wells up, we fall, and then we go, Lord, please forgive me. Lord, that was so wrong. Like, not that. Everybody say, not that. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a sin that wells up, a mistake that happens, a falling that occurs, a bad choice in it. It was sin. It was wrong. And so you come before God and go, Lord, please forgive me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He loves you. And all of God's people said. Okay, so we have hope in that. But this is a person who's like, I don't care. I'm going to keep sinning. I'm going to do what I want to do if they go on sinning deliberately. Just so we're clear, 1 John 3, 8 uses this exact same word for practicing sin, continuing in sin, ongoing, without any repentance. And it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
First John 3.8 is basically saying, if you go on and on and on, and there's no repentance, and no matter when the Spirit presses in, and sin, and sin, and I will keep in this. Do you see how wide apart my hands are right now? As far as I can stretch, right? Like, this is what I'm going to live life like. It says, well, that one is of the devil. That one doesn't care what God is saying and just goes on and on and on in it. So as you look into this person here, you're seeing them begin down that path. They are actually sinning and refusing to hear it and won't repent and sinning again and again and again. And do you see how wide my hands are here? We're not all the way out here yet, but we're along a path. And God is saying that is not going to continue. The one who is in this path will not continue down the path. This is of the devil. This is one who is beginning in with God and he is going to make sure it comes to an end. Okay? He's dealing with it along the way. There is a sinning and a sinning and a sinning and it's going to be addressed. It says that he is sinning deliberately and willfully, rebelliously, unrepentantly. I won't come off of this. This is not talking about one-off sins with repentance, right? First John 1, super clear. Anyone who says they're without sin is lying, right? We all have sin in our life, but the reality is coming to a Lord, please forgive me. God, that was wrong. What do I need to learn to begin to adjust and get around that? That's the walk of faith with Christ. This is the guy who says, I don't care. I will do what I want to do. Ongoing sin, unrepentant, okay? It says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, this word knowledge here means a very specific, detailed understanding of the truth. Understanding who Jesus Christ is. This is saved, right? Understanding who Christ is and grasping who he is. In fact, this exact phrase, this uh, word for knowledge here in a detailed way was used in Ephesians 4.13 to describe the saved person. So I would probably say this is another good example of why he's saved. He's receiving the knowledge of the truth. He's grasping who Jesus Christ is. He understands what saved is. He felt the heat of the altar of fire. He knew he needed to be saved. And he praised God he had the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And he loved the sacrifice and he loved the mercy. And then he started to love self. And maybe I'll just stay in the sin a little bit. Maybe a little bit more. Maybe I don't care. Maybe you've covered it and there's forgiveness so great. I'll take that. And be careful if that's your reasoning. Jesus forgives sin so I can go sin however I want. Paul deals with it in Romans 6.1. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And may we set the sin down that Jesus had to die for. Ready? And all of God's people said, okay, let's take it seriously. Let's not be caught in it. Let's set it down and give it to our king. He says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's like, well, if this person is literally saying, look, this is the Jewish people he's writing to. I've stepped away from the law. I'm not using it to count and cover anything. And now I'm stepping away from Jesus. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to go my own way. This person is literally deciding to say, I don't care if you apply a sacrifice to me. There's no other sacrifice coming there's no other opportunity out there. This is it. It's with Jesus alone. Now, please hear me. It doesn't say there's no sacrifice for sin because God is pulling it away. This is the person saying, no, thank you. And as soon as he confesses that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But the person is pulling away from that 
and putting themselves out into this sin in a huge way. Well, what's left if it's not a coverage and a repentance and a forgiveness and a hope in him? If you're choosing to just stand on your own sin, he says, there is no longer a remains, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. And uh, you can see why some might want to say this is an unbeliever when you hear these words, right? But I want to be really careful with it. I spent a lot of time this week saying, can you really even say these words to a believer? That there is actual judgment that comes on us here in this world, in this earthly world, while we're walking, if we choose to walk in sin. And so here's one verse to consider. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two. This is actually talking to those who are uh, wrestling with misusing communion at the time, but this is what's said. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two It says, but when we are judged by the Lord... This is talking to believers and it's not talking about eternity in some way and the uh, rewards and gifts that we may have and that kind of stuff in heaven. It's talking about here on earth when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God does actively wade into our life using the word here, judging Using the word here saying, I am going to bring to you a clarity, a discipline, so that you understand you need to let go of that sin. The guy who keeps on sinning and 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 and won't repent at all, refuses of the devil. And he's like, as you're beginning to sin and won't repent, sin and won't repent, sin, he leans in with a disciplining hand, a loving hand who wants you to let go of that which will hurt. God does step into our lives and say, not that. We need to let go of that. Holy Spirit conviction, a pressing down on the soul, us beginning to not feel real good about ourselves. Like there's a lot of people in the world that are wrestling with a self-image thing, a self-esteem thing while they try to hold on to sin. Man, please hear me. The worst thing we can do for our own sense of confidence before the Lord is try to just hold on to sin and refuse to repent. Please be careful. It's like, just so you know, you will be standing before the judging hand of God, before the disciplining hand of God, because he loves you. And now everybody say, he loves me. And so don't forget this context. It says, because in, in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is God doing a work in our lives to bring us along a path. He has sealed us. He has kept us, is what it says in Jude chapter one. I was talking to my dad this week about this passage and just chatting it through a bit. And uh, just a great comment came out about Jude chapter one. Just so we're clear, we are kept in Jesus. Here's what Jude one actually says. It says, to the ones who are called, actively involved in pulling us out, beloved in God the Father, he loves you. Beloved in God the Father, kept in Jesus. Just so we're super clear, the guarantee, eternal security that we talk about, in part is God not ever saying, I pull that back. Like it's a promise made of eternal life that he never reneges on. Praise God for that. And all of God's people said, he does not renege. And that's true. That's part of it. But here's the other part of it. And he won't let us back out. 
He's working with us to help us see what we need to let go of. Let's put it another way. He's a fantastic parent who is parenting this child with love and will help them to see it matters. You need to let this go. Man, it is so good that we grasp the loving side of discipline. I'm just telling you, the church loves to celebrate mercy, and we should. What an awesome celebration. But know this, sin matters. Take it seriously. Set it down. May God get all the glory. It is a huge battle cry. He says that we actually have this promise if we try to walk away from Jesus' covering. It says a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. I think a great statement there is beginning to feel the heat of the altar all over again. This is God leaning in. And in fact, that fury of fire, he then says, the fury of fire, you know, that same one that will consume the adversaries. There is heat that God will bring upon those who stand against him. Man, it is eternal. When we talk about salvation, we are saying, praise God for his mercy. I am not good enough to earn it. My God has it, and he has it alone. Praise God for that. May we not trounce on that. And we have the privilege of our sin covered, and just so we're clear, for those who won't come to Jesus Christ and try to stand alone, they stand alone under that fury of fire from God for eternity. And the author here of Hebrews is saying, just so I'm clear, just a little bit of that fury, a little bit of that fire, in a little bit of measure into your life, helping to discipline and walk you along so you learn to let go of the sin. God's saying, take sin seriously. Be careful along the way. It will ultimately consume the adversaries. If you go back to 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two, he says, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned. We will taste a little of it so that we will not taste the all of it for eternity. We have hope in Jesus Christ. And these are heavy words, right? And I'm, I'll be honest with you. I don't think we have a great theology about how sin is dealt with once we're saved. I think we love to say words like Jesus forgives, and so we just get to keep doing whatever we want. And this passage is a little sobering. It says, uh, nuh-uh. <laughs> right? And so let's be careful with it as we walk along this path. I'll say it this way. Here's a quote that I kind of came up with this week. Forgiveness is not freedom to sin. Forgiveness is freedom from sin. Forgiveness is not freedom to sin. Forgiveness is freedom from sin. May we experience the gracious gift of God, the mercy of forgiveness. And as we walk along a path, if we get caught up in a sin, know this, God will get invested in. And he's going to call us through it and beyond it. May God get all the glory. All right? You know, this past week I was uh, counseling. I love to be able to get to counsel a little bit, not a lot, but I get a little bit of counsel here and there uh, with all that's going on and uh, was counseling uh, a sweet couple that I've been working with for quite a while actually, probably well over a year and, and uh, actually it's been three years of stuff going on and we were just kind of reminiscing about some of what's gone on, just so much celebration in the, in the happiness of what's happened and, and uh, so I did get permission to share this just so you know, but as I was talking uh, with him, on Friday basically said, yeah, anything that can be shared that could help another. And I love that heart, man. Hear me. 
as I was talking to him a year and a half ago, he said, listen, I'm in an affair. I'm wrecking my home. I haven't been living in the house for three years. We're not together at all. And I know it needs to change, but I just can't get there. And as we started to meet, he was still wrestling with letting go of that affair and letting go of what was going on with it. He knew it was wrong. He saved, clearly saved, declaring it out, miserable, sick, knows it should be let go of and isn't. And as we walked through the process of counseling in that year and challenging that and saying, it's done, dude, it's got to end right now. And he steps away and then wrestles with the stepping away and how that feels. God began to do a work. And all of a sudden there was a change. There was a change going on in his wife who was saying, I'm going to make changes in my life for God to get the glory. Whatever happens here, and I would love to restore this marriage. I'm just telling you, Scripture's super clear. Where there is an affair, that is not a command that you try to make it work. But it is a sweet, sweet celebration if it can work. And praise God for that heart of willingness to forgive. And she ends up saying, I am willing to be in on this. If we need to, let's continue all the way to the end and get this thing right. And they began to work through it in a huge way. She became just this sweet celebration of God at work in her life. And while she was changing for Jesus Christ, he looks over and goes, that is stunning what's going on over there with her. Man, I long to see that happen in me. And he starts going along a path and all of a sudden his life is being changed and God starts doing a work in him. And they start celebrating together who they are, not together yet, but celebrating what's going on. And we started to walk through together a study of what it would be to bring it together with all of this being healed. And I love being able to do it. They were married decades of years. And so we went through premarital class. Just what does it look like to be married again together and taking some time and laughing together and joking about it as we learned along the way? And they ended up moving back in together over Christmas. Praise God for it. And they've been together now for three months, four months, and celebrating all that God is doing in this healing, restoring work. I asked him on Friday, so where are you at with things? This is his quote. Man, I'm just telling you, I chose to take a fight on with a God who knows how to fight. Amen. And he took it to my soul. And it was hard. And it beat me down. And I am so glad I lost. May God get all the glory for the healing in my life and the restoring in this marriage. Amen, man. We have a God who loves us. And he chooses to discipline us and help us to learn to let go of the sin that so easily entangles. And all of God's people said, what sin has you? Are you in a sin where you are on it and you're refusing to repent? And you're on it and you're on it and you're on it and you won't let go. Man, please hear me, it is time to set the sin down. What do you need to repent of? Point number two, live a worship with a healthy respect for God and his mercy. Live a worship with a healthy respect for God and his mercy. It says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, ready, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Did you know that in the Old Testament law, if you were like, I'm done with the law, I don't want to listen to it. 
then if there were two or three witnesses that could say that that was being done and lived out, then there was supposed to take that life. Physical death was punishment under the law for walking away from the law. And he's talking to Jewish people, so he's like, remember the law. Remember the cost of walking away there. By the way, just a little newsflash. So imagine you're a Jewish person around the time of Christ, and somebody says, just set down the law. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Just go with Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it all. Do you see how hard it could be for them to set down everything and step away with Jesus Christ when they know what the law says? Now, it's completely fulfilled in Jesus, so he completely fulfills it, closes it down, and raises up a better covenant. Praise God for it. But man, they had to set a lot of teaching and training down and see it as fulfilled in Christ. Man, have a respect for what it took for those first believers to come across and see Christ as the answer. Praise be to God. He says, just remember the cost under the law. So then he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? How much worse for those who trampled underfoot the Son of God? How much worse would it be if trampling the shadow cost physical death? What does trampling the substance Jesus Christ himself cost? If you're gonna walk away from Jesus, what's the cost there? He's like, come on guys, you know what the cost was under the old covenant. Be careful with how you toy here. And I wanna be careful how I say this. I just wanna be really cautious to this. You might be like, well, what's worse than physical death? Honestly, a lot of times, living through deep hardship struggle can be worse than physical death. Wrestling with trying to understand it all in light of something here on earth. And, but he says, how much worse punishment? So one thing I wrestled with this week is, does God really punish believers? Like we already know this, there is therefore now no condemnation. So there is no eternal condemnation. There is no separation from God. We know that. Scripturally, that's nailed down. So can punishment really come across? So I just ran across this, just so we're clear. There are at least three types of punishment, three categories. There may be even four or five, but let's simplify it. There's three categories of punishment, all right? The first one is maybe best said retribution, getting even, or maybe say it this way, oh no, you didn't, right? Punish, like I am going to beat back down on you for beating down on me. Punishment. Now, many may know of that punishment and be aware of that or have seen that or been victim to that and, and getting even on that. And man, when we as sinful human beings start using that, how violent that can be. And, and uh, just so we're super clear, this isn't that kind of punishment that's being talked about, this getting even punishment, this getting it done punishment. That bluntly is managed on the cross with Jesus Christ. But we do hear something else. And there's the next one. Maybe a rehabilitation that comes in punishment. If you think about it, when you say the parent punished the child, that's not because they're getting even, right? You are making my day miserable. I'm going to get even with you. Like it shouldn't be that, right? Everybody say not that. <laughs> right, all parents say not that, right? It's not that. <laughs> it's not that. It's supposed to be I'm helping you understand how you need to walk along. I need your heart to be shaped along the way, rehabilitation, and helping you to understand what to let go of, right? And here's another one, a deterrence as a punishment. Have you ever disciplined your older child 
and watched your younger child go, I ain't never doing that. <laughs> Deterrence, like punishment has a lot of value in it, right? And so punishment, there is the one sense of it, getting, even getting it done, taking full vengeance. But there are others, rehabilitation and deterrence. Those are very real pieces. And God definitely is actively involved in disciplining our souls along the way, using this rehabilitation and deterrence that comes with pain along the way, pressing in, and even circumstantials. You know, we were talking with a sweet couple on Friday Again, another couple I had a chance to counsel with years back and, and um, just meeting up with the guy for dinner and chatting. And um, as we talked, the guy used this phrase. He said, you know, hurt, but not harm. Right? Pain, but not destruction. That's God invested into your life and my life. If you are a believer, if you trust in him, he is disciplining, he is active. And I think too many of us have heard, Jesus died for sin, so therefore I can do whatever I wanna do until I get home to heaven. And that is a mistake that is not biblically supported. Be careful, he is a disciplining God. He is going to teach us to let go of the sin so that we don't end up like the one who is in it, steeped in it, of the devil in it, and headed for that deep, horrible judgment. He's pulling it up short and shaping our lives and changing our souls that God gets all the glory. And all of God's people said, got a verse for it, Tim? Yeah, Hebrews 12, 6. Same author, same book, two chapters later. He says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. That word chastise there, it is uh, an aggressive punishment to help them understand it's a rehabbing and a deterring along the way. He's disciplining and shaping them. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And all of God's people said, right? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, know this. We have a God who disciplines, who actively works in our life, who trains us. We have a God who knows how to fight. Do not take a fight on with the one who knows how to fight. You will go down. That's all the author of Hebrews is saying. It's time for us to show a deep respect for our God who is holy beyond measure. He says, how much worse? And then he uses three verbs here. He says, for the one who is trampling underfoot the Son of God. You know who Jesus is. You know he died for you. You say, thanks for dying on the cross. That's great, but I'm gonna keep doing whatever I wanna do. Trampling underfoot the son of God. It says, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Profaned, just so you know, in the original language, what it actually says here is uh, he is treating as normal, as ordinary. Just treating the blood of Christ like it's ordinary. Like it's just a cup of water sitting on the table. Like it's just a chair sitting next to you. It's just normal. There's nothing special about the blood of Christ. I'm not bending to that. Treating it not as holy, righteous, and life-altering. But it's no big deal. Treating it as normal. Profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This is what turned me to saying, this guy's got to be saved. He was sanctified. He was set aside as holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. He knows of Christ. He is set aside by the blood of Christ. 
and yet he's toying with his own sinfulness along the way, God will get involved. That's what it's saying. And then it says, and has outraged the spirit. I just want to be super clear. That could be the worst word of translation that I've really run into in the ESV, and I'm not kidding when I say that. Uh, Literally, the better wording is, who is insulting the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace. Insulting. It's verbs that are being done by the one who's sinning. He is insulting. They chose to flip to the other side and try to talk a little bit about how the Holy Spirit would feel. Outraged. It is not built in the word at all. What's built into the word is prideful insulting. That's what's saying there. I am profaning, I'm treating it as normal, the blood of Christ, and I am pridefully insulting the spirit of grace. The one who is pouring on blessing and pouring on forgiveness and pouring on opportunity and pouring on hope, and I am walking away and saying, I'll do whatever I want, insulting the spirit of grace. And uh, the NIV captures that word correctly. The NASB captures that word correctly. There are multiple translations that got that probably much better. And uh, just so we're super clear on that. uh, Insulting the spirit of grace. And then it says, for we know him who said. So if you're like, well, why would they even presume that God is outraged? These verses would probably tell you a little bit of why they might go there, but I'm just telling you it's not in the original language. They say here, uh, for, uh, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36, talking to the nation of Israel, and God is saying, don't you go after the vengeance, I've got that. I'm going to manage that. Just so we're super clear, if you're talking punishment, this is the retribution side punishment. For all those unbelievers who choose to say, I'm going to go my own path and I'm not going with Christ, please hear me. We literally then have to say, you are choosing to stand against the fury of God for eternity. Be careful. Don't toy with that. That isn't a place you want to be. And God says, yeah, vengeance is mine. I will repay. He is stepping into this world and he is making momentary change and eternal change. You know, I just wrote these words down just for a reminder. God is love. Everybody say God is love. And God is holy. Everybody say God is holy. And if we can walk away with two nailed down statements, love and holy, those are massive character statements of God. Here's my challenge. Please don't ask God to compromise either one. Love and holiness. Love and holiness. God in full display for us. It says, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Again, why do I think it's believers? The Lord will judge his people. Judge in a way that is disciplining, rehabbing, deterring, bringing them on a path, teaching them to let go of sin. Done with that, I will not repeat it. Lord God, you have all the right. And then he says in the end, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or to quote my dear friend from Thursday when we were talking, I took on a fight with a God who knows how to fight and I lost bad. Praise God, I lost. Man, please hear me. Your God loves you. He cares for you and he will lean in with you. 
If you were on the side of the fence where you're like, I don't know this Jesus Christ, know this, he is willing to cover all sin. He is the Lamb of God, died for us, rose for us, our hope. We can trust in Jesus and be forgiven. And more than that, if you are on the saved side and you have sin in your life that you are not letting go of, time to be done. Lord, please forgive me. I hand this to you. I'm done. And all of God's people said, let's pray. 